This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hi, everybody. It's Doc from the John Freakin' Mirpod, and I want to let you know about our new website on WordPress. Take a few minutes and check it out. You'll be able to find pictures of the pod's guests, links to the podcast and social media accounts, ways to support the pod, how to get in touch, and our entire back catalog is there, including episode summaries. Missed these sections of the JMT episodes? You can find them there. Missed a Triple Crowner episode? Yep, that's there too. World travelers, adventure athletes, polar explorers, Barkley Marathon competitors, authors, filmmakers, documentarians, and more are waiting for you. Take a look at the new website, and just a reminder, adventure lives here. What's behind you doesn't matter. Enzo Ferrari. The, like, the real story about this race is that the eastern portion is just so much harder than the west. Like you think the west is going to be hard because there's all the there are all these mountain passes and climbs, but the east is just like choppy up and down, kind of like the Appalachian Trail. Like it's just like punchy and hard, relentless. Uh, but then that's actually when I kind of came into, you know, like what I can actually do. Like I'm a great climber. That's what I can do. You know, this road riding flat terrain it was horrible for me, but I could climb. So then I'm catching this guy, and then I realize like okay, well, I have to start cutting sleep to actually try to make it go to catch him. So then, like, three nights out, I sleep, you know, two and a half hours. Two nights out, I sleep another two and a half hours. The final night, I sleep, like, 20 minutes and then another 10 minutes. 
and I'm like, I'm gonna catch him. And then I'm riding along, you know, the middle of the night, Evan had fallen asleep, so he had, on a descent, he had had to stop and go to a hotel, which sucked, because I wish we were together for that. But then um, I'm gaining, you know, ground, and then I see this light coming back towards me. Uh, and I was like, oh, who is that? Three in the morning. And it was, uh, and then I see this guy with like a bike and all the gear and, um, and I was like, what is that? Like a fan or what? But when he sees me, he turns around and starts riding with me and I turn and look at him and he's like, what's your name? And he told me Stefan. And then <laughs> I realized that's the guy I'd been chasing and he had been so out of it that he had woken up and started riding backwards. He rode like, you know, you know, over 4,000 mile race. He started, woke up, started riding backwards. I think rode like 10 miles backwards. And then saw me and then started riding the right way. And then, and then he told me his name and then I was just like, I just took off. And then I'm just sprinting like crazy. I'm Doc and this is the John Freaking Muir Pod. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. From the backcountry to the backyard, we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection. Since 1984, Sawyer Products offers the best, most technologically advanced solutions for protection against sun, bugs, and water, using time-released liposome technology, topical insect repellents, and new standards in water filtration. And with every Sawyer product you buy, you are helping to provide clean water through 140 charities in 80 countries with their long-lasting water filters. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your pod- podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like my creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. And welcome back to another week on the trail with the John freaking Mirpod. This week, we've got a real treat for our listeners. Now, I've talked to a number of endurance athletes on the pod, including multidisciplined adventure athletes, adventure racers, fast packers, and guys who run 240 miles at a time. But my guest this week may be the biggest badass of them all. I would like to welcome ultra-endurance bike racer, Lale Wilcox, to the pod. Welcome, Lale. 
Hey, thanks for having me. Lael, you've been called the fastest ultra endurance racer in the world by Bicycling Magazine. And you've raced in multiple long distance events across the world, even creating some of your own races and routes yourself. Uh, can you define for our listeners ultra endurance bicycle racing and tell us how you got involved in it? Because I, I think you came into it relatively recently, right? Yeah, I started racing in uh, self-supported racing in 2015. So the special thing about the racing that I do is that it's a continuous clock. So everybody starts together and whoever gets to the finish first wins. And that could be 100 miles or 4,000 miles or longer. Um, and then it's self-supported, so that means you have to carry everything you need along the way. Um, you can always stop at stores or restaurants or hotels, but those are services allowed for um, the public. So they're kind of neutral ground, but you can't have like a support vehicle or anybody meet you along the way to help you. Um, and yeah, I really, before I was racing, I was just touring on the bike, traveling the world and during a trap uh, during a trip i entered my first race and i had no idea what i could do and um i just had so much fun out there and i realized that this was something that was exciting for me and also something i was really good at so i just continued from there and that was april 2015. so since then i've been doing a mixture of racing traveling and then i also host a girls mentorship program and women's scholarships and really anything I can do to kind of encourage more people to try this, see what's out there, um, and especially women, and then um, also just pursue my own dreams. So I feel like, you know, I'm usually not planning more than six months in advance, but that brings me all over the world to do just different fun things. That is incredible. Now, did, did you misspeak right there? Did you say 4,000 miles? Yeah, so the longest race I... Uh, entered was the Trans Am. So 4,200 miles from Astoria, Oregon to Yorktown, Virginia. And that was self-supported. It was a road race. Uh, I'd never, you know, there's all these different kinds of riding. There's road, there's mountain, there's gravel, there's, you know, time trial. Uh, and the cool thing about this style of racing, the self-supported bikepacking, is that there are different kinds of races, but everybody really just tries all of them because it's like, well, why not? It's there. And then, you know, a race that long, the train's going to change along the way. Um, so yeah, that was my longest race. And I actually outright won it in 2016. Uh, I was, it took me 18 days, 10 minutes. I averaged 237 miles a day. Uh, I slept most nights about five hours and uh, I traveled through you know, a lot of rural America. I mean, the cool thing about that race is it's based on the oldest bike touring route in the U.S. So it's the Trans Am bike route made by Adventure Cycling, established in 1976. Uh, so the year that I raced it was the 40th anniversary of the route. And in 76, uh, it had been two to 4,000 young people had started together uh, to ride the route, just to tour it, you know, on old bikes, just as this, uh, it was like a, to inaugurate the bicentennial. They called it the bike centennial. And they all went out to ride this together. And, you know, at that time, it's like, how did you, how did people even coordinate to meet up for that? It was all through the mail. They're like, hey, let's do this. You know, this is going to be a big deal. And they did. And then I go, went back 40 years later to 
uh, enter a race on it. Another guy established a race, I think three years before. And then I just so happened to do it that year. And uh, after winning the race, I went back to this big celebration for the route and got to meet people that had been on the original tour. And they are now like, you know, 60s, 70s. Uh, and then they're talking about their adventure 40 years ago and how different that was from mine. I mean, they, I think they took like four months to ride it and I wrote it in 18 days. Wow. Uh, but different, you know, different approach. And I mean, that's an adventure itself too. You're living on that route for that long. Speed doesn't make it better. It just makes it different. Right. Uh, but right. yeah, what a way to see the country, you know, and that summer it was a heat wave. Uh, I would check and half the days hit 106 degrees. I was just dying out there. It was so hot. But this wow. was in June. So yeah. don't give too much away because that's one of our discussion points. <laughs> later. We're going to drill down into that uh, 2016 Trans Am race and get into the, the nitty gritty of that. That sounds yeah. uh, like an incredible experience. Now, before we get too far down the trail, Lail, um, I want to give you a warning about a regular feature we have on the pod. It's called the Pro Tip insight of the week so we've got an audience listening to us who are interested in long distance backpacking adventures different different types of uh, uh, epic experiences out there and so what i'm going to do at the end of the episode i'm going to turn to you and say okay lael what is your pro tip insight of the week what can you share with our listeners to make their next adventure that much better mm -hmm. all right so don't be surprised okay. and uh okay. It might, you know, just the idea might pop up during our conversation in terms of sure. what you're going to share. So keep that in mind. Keep on the lookout for the pro tip. All right. So let's, let's back up a little bit and talk about uh, where you grew up, what your mm -hmm. background is, which, what, what, what interest did you have growing up? Um, were you a biker uh, early on? Um, and just, you know, how you got to where you are right now? Oh, sure. Uh, no, I wasn't a biker. I was a, uh my first love in sports was basketball and then soccer. And then I was obsessed with soccer all through high school. Uh, and yeah. And then uh, I got into running and that was kind of like my change from team sport to solo. Uh, but I never saw biking as a, um, as a sport. It was just transportation. So that, you know, what started, I mean, I really didn't start riding until college and I started riding just to commute to and from work and then uh riding around town at that point i was living in tacoma washington uh going to college and i had to ride four miles to a job at a brewery and that was just too far to walk so i've never owned a car i don't know how to drive uh i used to walk everywhere so then the bike was like my step up to having like a vehicle you know and then i was <laughs> like wow i can go so much farther it's so much faster so um that's how I got into it, but I never really thought about competing. I mean, it's just not really a, a, much of a competitive sport in the U.S., at least especially not for me growing up in Alaska. Um, you know, every, every kid learns how to ride a bike pretty much, but beyond that, you don't really, and I think every kid loves to do it, uh, but you don't really think, like, this is something I could dedicate my life to, and I never expected to be doing this, but I'm so happy I found it later. And uh, I think that's good too, because I never like went through a burnout phase. I wasn't like so driven that it was like, it got old. It's like every day I get to ride, I'm, I'm happy about that. And whether it's competition or long distance or short distance, it's like, it's just such a relief to be out there. It's so fun. So that's kind of how I got into it. 
So did I, I hear you correctly earlier? You said 2015, you entered a race for your first time? Yeah. So I started riding probably in 2006. Like I had, I learned how to ride, but I actually started riding to work in 2006 and then started traveling on the bike in 2008. And then I spent the next seven years working half the year in restaurants to save money to spend the other half of the year traveling. And that started on roads in the US and then down into Baja in Mexico and then in, through Europe and then to South Africa and the Middle East and basically anywhere like that seemed like a good place to go with a cheap plane ticket and a good season, that's where I wanted to go. Um, and then along the way, realized that I liked riding dirt roads better than paved roads, just less traffic, more interesting places. And then finding those roads or finding those routes, I found that riding bikepacking race routes where like some, some local had set a route that's like, you know, a thousand K or a thousand miles. And then you follow it for the race. It's like, usually those are, you can find those online. So that was a great way to explore a place just at a touring pace, not in the race, um, but just to, to have like a special route. So then I was riding one of these routes in, Israel, the Holy Land Challenge. And then I realized I was actually going to be still be in the country when the race was happening in April 2015. And then I thought, well, the race is happening. I should just enter and see how it goes. You know, I'm already here. I've already ridden the route. I really like it. I'd like to ride it again. You know, so I'll just show up for the start. Uh, and so that's what I did. And I just had my touring set up. It's like a, you know, $400 steel mountain bike and you know, my travel stuff, running shoes, platform pedals, cotton t-shirt, you know, I was the only woman that started. And I think it was like the third year of the race. And, you know, all these guys just thought I was a joke. They had all this fancy equipment and, you know, they're so serious and they had a plan and I was just there, you know, goofing off. And they're like, one guy's like, are you going to even finish the first day? And I was like, well, I, I don't really know, but I think I can, you know, <laughs> I was like, I've ridden it. I, I like it. And so then that day I rode 145 miles and throughout the day, you know, there are these guys ahead of me. And then into the night, I just kept riding. And then, you know, I rode till three in the morning and then, you know, I found out later that I was at, when I stopped, I was 25 miles ahead of the second place guy. You know, I was like well, well ahead of the full field. Mm -hmm. And then I sleep for three hours and then I wake up and I just keep going. And I was like feeling great. And, uh, you know, all these Israelis were like, what is happening? How is she doing that? You know, it's like, this is just impossible. So then like locals started coming to find me on the trail because I had a little tracker so they could come see. They like wanted to see if I was actually real. They're like, this is <laughs> insane because like women aren't really athletic there. Like they just, you know, they, they mountain bike a little bit, but they're not really like competitive. They're not obviously not entering the race. They're not taking on this huge challenge. And so uh, I think that was like so exciting just because I didn't know what I was capable of. And then to do it in a place where it's like, you know, women aren't in sports that even meant more. Uh, but at that time I was like, okay, well, this is kind of a test because if I like this, then I'll go back. I'm going to fly back home to Alaska and I've got just enough time to uh, get my gear together and ride through Alaska, through Canada, down to Banff, uh, Alberta to the start of the tour divide. Cause the, the tour divide is based on the great divide mountain bike route from Canada to Mexico. And it's 
a route that I had toured before. And I was like, well, if I'm actually good at this racing, that's, that's the race I want to do. You know, it's like goes all the way through the Rockies and like, and I, I like the terrain and I just want to see how I could do so. Uh, and to ride to the start from Alaska, that's adding on another 2,100 miles, you know? So that's what I did. So back uh, to the, back to the race in Israel, where, did you finish the race? I did. And you, did? you know, it got a, he got a little messed up because, uh, it, it, uh, I think two, three days into the race, I was far in the lead and then it poured rain. And then, uh, the soil there is, has so much clay in it that it just turns into this crazy, crazy mud, which is like the enemy of, of bikers yeah, mud in uh mud in, in like desert because it it like just gums to your wheels and stops your wheels from spinning so you can't spin your the wheels can't spin anymore you definitely can't ride you can't even push your bike you have to carry it on your shoulder and then you're stomping through mud and then mud is just caking your shoes and then it's just kind of this death march you know where you're going like a mile an hour and working so hard mm -hmm. so this happened but I was still like, well, I'm still in the race. I'm still doing it. So I kept going. And then, well, I mean, like my final night out there, I, I didn't have like a tent or a real bivy. I just had this emergency bivy and it's pouring rain. I slept under a tree uh, on like an incline of a hill. And then I was like using the tree to like stay or using the base of the tree to like kind of push myself up. And I slept there and then I got up in the morning and I kept going you know, trudging and then finally to like kind of a sandier area. And then I like keep going up to this town and it was raining so much that the river that was in between me and the town was flooded and I had to cross it like no bridge. And I crossed it and I uh, actually like the, the current like pulled me under and I almost lost my bike, but I grabbed it and I kept this, it. And this I is, this it. is starting to sound like a through hike. This is yeah, starting to sound exactly. like, you know, PCT. I mean, like yeah. it, it gets, you know, it's like the weather changes, things change. And, and right. so I actually made it to the town and then I stopped this bakery and I'm like kind of, um, you know, preparing, like, what can I do to keep going? I'm like, maybe this town I can get like a smaller tire so I get better mud clearance so I can, you know, make some more distance than I am right now. And, uh, and then they had canceled the race or not canceled it, but they, they said we're stopping and we're restarting farther south out of the muddy area, you know, and I find this out. So I was like, okay, uh, at that point, I'm like 12 hours ahead of the second place guy. And then they're like, okay, we're restarting in the south. Everybody's going to get transported there. And then we'll all start again together. Oh, that, that had to be disheartening. Well, it was tough, but then I liked the guys I was riding with. Okay. So I was like, well, you know, I just worked so hard to get there, but then, you know, I, I did it. And then for the second, so I finished the first half well in the lead, the second half, I finished second to a guy that I really liked, Neve. but you know, it's like, then you're like, well, what's the point of what's, what's the point of it? You know, it's like, you're trying to win, but then you're like, well, I still want to be out there. And then it's like, well, does the result still matter at all? If like somebody's changing the rules along the way and like truncating the race. I don't know, but I'm still happy I was out there, but you know, it's hard. It's hard to sacrifice so much and then have people just kind of take it away from you. Yes, absolutely. So what was the total distance that you rode that first race? 
uh, probably ended up being about 650 miles or so. 650 yeah. miles for your first race. And then, yeah. a, and then a year later, you win the 4,200-mile Trans Am race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's true. That's, that's, that's quite a start into the, uh, into the profession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But it's all the same. You know, you just keep going. I mean, 600 miles versus 4,000. At that point, what's the difference? It's like your lifestyle is just being out there. And then it's like, how long can you do it? You know? at, at what point did you realize that, <laughs> hey, I'm pretty good at this and uh, I should well, keep I, doing this? I mean, I had done one other race the year before. This was in Alaska, but it was not self-supported. So it was a 400-mile road race uh, called the Fireweed 400, and it's a qualifier for a race across America. And there's a cutoff time of something like 36 hours. Uh, But I had been riding all over the state, borrowing my mom's road bike. My friend was like, you've been riding so much, you're ready for this. So I entered and I did it, and and I finished in 27 hours and I didn't even know I could finish that distance. So then I was like, well, that's when I knew that I could just keep going basically forever, you know? And then it's like, once you like realize that, it's like, well, what's, you know, what is the limit really? And then I guess, you know, I'm always curious to find it because every race it's going to be something different. You know, you're stuck in the mud or I've had problems breathing or the severe heat in the Trans Am, uh, it's always something different. So then it's like, well, you know, find, find the limit for that race and then deal with it, I guess. It's yeah. I want to come back to that. Thought in, I want to come back to that thought in just a second, but I want to ask first, is this now your full-time job? I mean, do you have another career and you fit in biking around that or is, is biking is ultra endurance bike racing, your, your full-time career and you've got sponsorships. Well, yeah, it is. Biking is definitely my full-time job now, but it's not just the racing. It's like, basically at this point, I make a schedule of all the things, like my dreams for the year. And then I'm like, Hey, this is what I want to do. And then, you know, sponsors say, wow, that's, we want to help with this part or we want to help with that part. And I try to keep like a balance of different kind of ambitions, like making a route or, or do entering a race or travel or, you know, a different program, just because like, if it was only racing, it's really taxing uh, physically to do the races and there's only, it's only so much fun to load them on. You know, it's like, yeah, after a while it's like, okay, great. I can ride 200 miles a day for two weeks. Like it does, it's not exciting after a while. It's like, that's like a job. So then I'm like, well, what could I do? Like, it's always, for me, it's always important to have something to look forward to something to be excited about, but yeah, it's my full-time job to do that. And then before that I was just working at restaurants and bike shops to, pay for it. So um, I feel so fortunate that I just actually get to focus on what I like. You so, know? Lael, what's your secret? Because the beginning of every year, I make a list of all, all my dream activities that I want to do. And I, I go look for sponsors and I can't find anybody who wants to help sponsor me on my, my adventures. I so. guess I just did it for, you know, a decade before anybody offered anything. <laughs> so maybe oh, that. Okay. Persi- <laughs> persistence. Persistence. And yet maybe, you're really good. You have to maybe really good keep at it. doing it. <laughs> Got it. Tell me about your first sponsor. How, what was that experience like? Um, my first sponsor is Revely Designs uh, that make bike packing bags. Um, and they actually started sponsoring me before 
or providing me equipment before uh, I was racing uh, just because I rode so much, you know, and then I, I guess I'm the ultimate gear tester for them because it's like I ride the amount in a couple months that somebody might ride in like five years. And so then they see like how the bags hold up. And I'm also like not that fastidious with my packing or with my cleaning or maintenance. I just kind of go. So then it's like you see real wear and tear. Uh, so that's, and they're also based out of Anchorage, Alaska, uh, where I'm from. So it's been really cool to work with them. I think it's been since 2012. Um, and they also support the girls program I run. They give bags to uh, these low-income girls, 12 and 13 years old, that I work with in Anchorage. Um, but at the same time, it's like uh, the, they started as a company in 2008, I think. Basically right when I started riding, maybe a little bit earlier, maybe 2004. But out of it's a friend of mine Eric Persons out of his garage who just started making bags and he started I think because he was racing the Iditarod or the Idita sport you know the Iditarod trail it's a yes. thousand mile dog yep. sled race in Alaska mm -hmm. uh, but Absolutely. now people race it on foot or on bike uh, or ski and so he he was doing that and he was making his own bags and realized nobody had bags so then he's like well this is a need but you know nobody expected that people would ever want to pursue bikepacking. You know, at that time, it's like, it was just kind of a weird thing. So he started his own company and then, and then it just has grown so much, you know, it's like, it's like something people actually consider as like an adventure. You know, you go to REI and you buy bikepacking bags. I mean, that just is like mind blowing because yes. before it's just like, people are just, you know, trying to strap a dry bag to their handlebars or something they want to carry something or just wear a backpack. But yeah, uh, the world has I evolved feel, to these uh, adventure athletes out there. Yeah. I guess more people realize this is an option and something they want to do. So I feel like, especially with Revelate, we've kind of gotten to grow together to, you know, something that we like other people actually like, you know, I never expected that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Used to be if I saw somebody with bags on their bike in Alaska, I pretty much knew them. You know, and now you see, and now I see people riding around like, Hey, I don't know that person. It used to be a small crowd and now it's a, now it's a big crowd. I, I hope so. Uh, I'm excited to see that, you know, like people, people want to be challenged because it's hard. Bikes are heavier with stuff on them, mm -hmm. you know, but it's also like a lot of freedom. So you entered that first race with your $400 bike. Is that what you said? Four hundred dollars yeah. steel, steel frame bike. What what have you mm -hmm. evolved to? What is your what does your equipment uh, look like now? Oh yeah. Uh, well, actually, after that race, I bought my first fancy bike, which was specialized uh, at the time stump jumper hardtail. And I was like, oh man, this is like it was a three thousand or it was a five thousand dollar bike. I got a deal at the shop. It was three thousand dollars, and I was like, this is you know half the money I make in a year. And I was like, uh, well, I'm going to race on this and then I'll sell it. <laughs> and then I'll be okay. Uh, and then, um, yeah, so I, I bought myself a Specialized and then I raced the Tour Divide twice that summer. And then that fall, um, somebody from REI and Outside Magazine got in touch with me to do a time trial on the Arizona Trail. Uh, but that's, Arizona Trail is like a rugged hiking trail. I was like, well, I can't race that on this bike i need like a mountain bike and they're like well what's your ideal mountain bike and i was like well a specialized epic 
So they're like, okay, we can get that. And then uh, since then I've been sponsored by Specialized, you know, and then gosh, they make the best equipment. Yeah, it's like these dream bikes like that are made for racing for an hour and then I just go race them for two weeks. But it's been really cool, you know, to take these like basically spaceships and then uh, take them across the country. So is it safe to say that that $3,000 you dropped on that, uh, that, what was it? A stump, stump, uh, stump, stump jumper? jumper, stump jumper. That was the last money you spent on a bike. No, no. Uh, well, I don't know. Bikes are complicated. You know, you have to like, they have a lot of parts on them that you okay. have to constantly replace if you ride a lot, especially, you know, and this stuff is so expensive. I mean, like, but that's the thing is like, I, I do get a lot of help with components and equipment, but there's, it's, there's always something, you know, I mean, like I started as a runner in like my first, I think seven years bike touring. I was like, God, this equipment is just killing me. You know, you think about the simplicity of just being on foot versus right. like maintaining a bike and something could go wrong, but then it's also like the tool that could take you so much farther and you get a rest on, you get to descend, you know, it's like, there's so many benefits, but you know, bikes, gosh, I always have to like have friends that are bike wizards because like, I can't, you know, I don't know how all this stuff's going to work together and it's constantly changing. And some people that's, that's their passion. They love gear. But for me, I'm like, okay, okay. What's going to work. But then it always, it just keeps getting better and better. So I'm, that's not the last money I've spent on a bike. That's okay. for sure. All right. I thought, I thought everything was just handed to you by these sponsors. Sound like it was a sweet gig. It is, but you know, it's, I guess it's just more, uh, more equipment, more, uh, more complicated. Yeah. You know, especially like you have to, you have to make sure everything works, but I am in a position where like I get to ride the best stuff and it's so, so cool. You know, it's like amazing to ride these bikes and they're always changing and they're all these different disciplines. So it's like, I could be descending on like huge boulders. And then the next week I'd be like flying up a paved climb, you know, and the bikes are so different And the, that's what, that's part of what keeps it fun for me too. Right. So how, when you, when you were a runner, how far, what distances did you run? Did you do hmm. marathon distance? I ran um, a, a, a marathon right out of high school. So I started running my senior year of high school uh, on, on the cross country team mm -hmm. and I loved it. And I, um, and then, uh, you know, and then I had this idea, I want to run a marathon. So I did right after I graduated. Uh, and then I ran a bit in college. I think we ran the 6k, you know, I mean, I always wanted to run longer, but like the competitive distances are, you know, 5k, 6k, 10k. Uh, so that's what I did. Right. And did, did the, uh, the running regimen, the, uh, your, your time on the pavement, did it translate well to, uh, same, same type of, uh, exercise on the bike or is that total, totally different, totally different muscle set? I mean, the thing is, it's like, I think I loved running more, uh, but it's just so much harder on your body. You know, I'm actually really kind of happy that I got out of it because it's like, but I really got into endurance solo riding because I was injured running. I had an Achilles injury. I couldn't run. So I was borrowing my mom's road bike and riding farther and farther just because I was like so frustrated that I couldn't run because I was like my true love. You know, it's like, I was like mourning, losing running. Uh, but then that, then I realized I could, I was really good at that. And um, it's so much easier on your body. You know, it's like, 
I mean, I'm 34 now, but running is just, it's an amazing feeling, but it, it's taxing for sure. You know, I don't know anybody that has like great, great long, longevity with running. So uh, I, I'd say it's really similar. What I find the most similar is to running is standing up on the bike, which I do a lot of. It's like kind of the same motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I'd say they're, they're pretty compatible. I, I'd say more uh, talented runners should bike. Okay. Because I think they would find like exceptional results. Nice. Okay. Now you mentioned earlier about finding your limit or finding, finding your limit in a race. Um, how much of a 4,200 mile race is uh, physical limitations versus mental limitations? Well, especially a self-supported race yeah. because you have to make every decision along the way. You have to get water, you have to get food, you have to decide when to sleep, where to sleep, you know, how you're going to take care of yourself. You have a mechanical. During that race, I broke my seat post, uh, cracked it. So I had to ride 50 miles standing up to get to a town with a bike shop to replace it. You know, I mean, like this kind of stuff is just going to happen. Flat tires, you know, then you're going to have problems. So um, I think it's both because like you have to keep your mind alert, but you know, you're always doing physical work. It's like, there's, there's no easy moment, you know? So it's like, it's gotta be both. Your body has to hold up to that kind of distance. And, um, so I, I think it's really both, but then it's like, that's the, the interesting part is like, who's going to win, you know, at the end of the day, who's going to win, who rides the fastest for the first 10 hours. You know, it's like, how many hours are there in 18 days? Right. <laughs> you know, a lot more. Yes. <laughs> so then it's like, well, who's going to win? And then that's like the, the kind of like spark of excitement is like, well, I, you know, I show up next to like these guys, I was wearing like a Cotton Haynes t-shirt and these guys are on like time trial bikes. It's like, well, which one's going to work better? whoever wins, that's what worked better, you know? So it's like, that's the, the purity of it is just, it's just the result. Uh, but yeah, but I did have a great specialized bike, you know, I have this great road bike and, um, but you know, that's, it, it takes so much to get there. So, uh, I think it's definitely a mix. And I think, I think as uh, I think more people are getting interested in this style of riding because it's like you're making all your own choices. You know, there isn't a team behind you. You don't have a manager. What do you do when you get out there? You know. So let's go back to that statement by uh, Bicycling Magazine where they they called you the fastest ultra endurance racer in the world. Is that does that definition mean that speed wise you are the fastest, or that you will put in the extra hours to go the extra distance? You're just I mean, I, I don't like that article at all. (laughs) 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 To be honest, they sent a woman up here to like kind of shadow me for a week and she was really hard to deal with. And I was running a girls program at the time and working so hard because that's so much harder than racing for me. It's like organizing, putting events on, like, encouraging others but it's something that I'm really driven to do because it's like I didn't know about this sport if I hadn't found it I you know it's like Mm -hmm. it's just so much by chance you know and then I'm like well this is a great opportunity for other people not to compete but just to be out there to feel this freedom to ride somewhere to carry your stuff so I do that but then yeah bicycling sent up a woman that was just like she was less capable than the 12 year old girls I was mentoring 
you know, and then she writes this article and I think it's garbage, but you know, that's how it goes. Whatever. <laughs> so I I don't even know how to respond to fastest or whatever, but you know what? The thing is, is like, there are a lot of people with good results and um, that's great. You know, it's like, find, find your own way in it. Do it because you like to uh, work hard, hopefully have some fun, you know, because if it wasn't fun, I wouldn't keep doing it. Let me put it this way. So are, are you faster than most of the other racers out there or are you just riding longer hours during the day to get the no, miles in? Because I sleep like four or five hours a night. Is that and typical? Then, you know, uh, for me, you but, know, some, some of these racers are like not sleeping for two nights and then sleeping a bit on the third. Okay. Some people are sleeping for seven hours a night, you know, it's like it, but it is a lot about efficiency. So it's mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, sleep's one thing, but then like, what about stopping for everything else? What about stopping to eat? I try not to do that. I just eat on the bike. Or when you stop to change layers or you stop to kind of work on your equipment or whatever, you know, it's like a lot of it comes into time moving, time moving forward. But right. because like when you look at the overall average speed, like for a 24 hour day, it could be like, you know, 10 hours, 10 miles an hour, which is not fast on a bike, but then it's like, well, you know, everything takes time and especially time off the bike, then your speed's zero, you know? So it's like, I mean, that's hiking. It's like, you can't stop moving or you'll never get anywhere. Yeah. It's Hiking's like we, so we had, much harder. <laughs> we had, uh, we had a couple of guys on the pod uh, a few weeks ago, Gabe and Kevin, and they fast packed the John Muir trail. So they did 211 miles in six days. And uh, they both had run the Moab 240. So they were ultra endurance runners and they had in their minds before coming onto the trail that they were just going to run the John Muir trail. Cause Gabe's wife said, Hey Gabe, you, you've got a week to do this. And so he said, okay, well mm -hmm. we better, we better try and do Fit it, fast. it in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he said, okay, we'll just, we'll just, uh, we'll show up and we'll, we'll run the John Muir trail and we'll be done quick. And they uh -huh. got there and realized that the terrain uh, would not allow them to run the trail. And so they had to shift their plan from trying to be speedy on the trail to Spending putting in 18 hour days and hiking right. longer than anybody else. And they got it done in six, six days. So that was, that was kind of what I was looking at with uh, this quote about the fastest ultra endurance racer. If that meant that you were physically faster than everybody else, or you just had have the mentality to put in the hours and get the miles in. I think everybody is doing that though. Anybody yeah. that's riding more than a single day event, which is typically more than 400 miles. It's like, it's, it's so much about time on the bike, you know, and like a 400 miles, like you can ride 400 miles in a day and you have to ride like a pretty decent pace to get that done. Um, but then beyond that, it's like, it's, it's always like, especially if you're taking care of your own needs, it's like a compromise, right? I mean, people do race across America where they have like two sport vans and they have people keeping them on the bike. But the interesting thing is they're actually not that much faster. How is that? You know, what's happening there? It's like, aren't you, but it's like, that's because people aren't just like robot machines. Like you have needs. You, you have to get off the bike to pee. Right. <laughs> like you, you pretty much have to do that. You know, you that, have a, to like, that's a thing. You have to change your shirt. You have to put a jacket on. Like uh -huh. all of this stuff takes time. And then, you know, like you're a good racer for so many different reasons, but one of them is because you're 
a multitasker, you're efficient. You know, you have to be, there's no other way. So you're more efficient. You're, you're a multitasker. Everybody is. That is in the top 10. And you, keep yeah, I mean, every, like, you keep saying everybody, but you know, you did win this thing called the, the, uh, the, the, the Trans Am race, 4,200 miles. Right. But I wasn't a good road racer at the time. And that's, you know, four and a half years ago. I just did it. I mean, gosh, it was like, it was so hard, but I've gotten faster since. I'll okay. tell you that. All right. Very good. Uh, hey, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, how I stumbled across your story with the uh, Ruta Chingaza uh, cool. short documentary. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then I want to get into the nitty gritty of this Trans Am race because it is just mind boggling to me. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. I'm Lael Wilcox. I'm an ultra-endurance cyclist, and you're listening to the John Freaking Muir Pod. And welcome back. We're talking to Lael Wilcox uh, about her ultra-endurance biking experiences. And we want to get down to uh, this little uh, short doc that I saw uh, called, it was about uh, Ruta Chingaza. Is that, is that the correct pronunciation? Yep. Okay, tell us about that a little bit. Uh, tell us about that that uh, that documentary and what it's based on. Yeah, so that documentary is about a project uh, with us and us, meaning me and my girlfriend Rue, and Conservation International and Bikepacking.com. So Conservation International pitched a project to design a uh, a, a bikepacking loop to kind of um, show a conservation corridor. And this was globally. It was four young people from this organization, which is the biggest conservation nonprofit in the world. And they said, well, we wanna make a route because if people ride their bikes through conservation areas, they'll care about the land, they'll learn things, they can do it on their own. That's the best way to kind of get a feeling for a place. Um, they got this grant and they asked uh, bikepacking.com to make a route. And the whole idea was to make a route that would take people about a week to tour. Um, and then along the way, they, they learn. Uh, and then bikepacking.com uh, asked Rue and I to come on board to make a video about the project. Rue would shoot the video and edit it. I would be there to kind of increase exposure for the route and the project and the story. And then people would be excited to come ride it themselves. Um, so that's what we did. So we spent six weeks in Colombia in January and February, right before all the COVID craziness started mm -hmm. um, for us anyway. And then uh, we spent that time there. It was our first time in South America. Uh, and we got to ride and, and um, verify the route, meet locals, and then make it all happen. Um, so that was that was the premise of the project. Part of it too was that I would go back after scouting the route and touring it a couple times. I'd go back and ride it all in one go to set uh, an FKT. So I did that too, kind of at the end of our trip. Uh, and all of it was just so much fun. I mean, the thing with Colombia is that it's cycling is the most popular sport there, more than soccer, more than anything. Everybody rides, and I had no idea. You know, going into this place, I I'd heard it was a great place to ride and 
you know, beautiful mountains, but I didn't know that there was just this fervor, this excitement for riding. So uh, to kind of be dropped into that, it was just uh, fantastic, you know, and then uh, Bogota, the capital city where we started is at 8,800 feet. And then we just go up from there, you know, so we were riding up to 13,000 feet. It was humid. Um, the whole route was designed to focus on how Bogota gets its drinking water. So uh, it goes up high into Chingaza National Park, which is what the route's named for. And uh, that's a specific ecosystem that captures moisture from the air, naturally filters it through the plants. And that's what provides drinking water to Bogota, a city of 10 million. You know, I mean, that's 80% of their drinking water is natural. Wow. So our whole thing was to like focus on, on how important that is and how important that land is. And, you know, it's threatened by farmers, it's threatened by growth, but, uh, you know, if they can keep it intact, they have water, which is at this point, like, I mean, of course, it's always an essential resource, but uh, if you can keep it natural, that's, that's just going to make this community thrive, you know, without a bunch of expense and without hardship. It's like, it's just there, you know, and so to, to be part of this project was huge. It was so cool just to see and to learn and to kind of connect with people. But uh, just that's, that's the kind of the cool thing is like, I, you know, I, I, yeah, of course, I think conservation is great. And of course, like, I like this, but I'm not like, um, I don't have a lot of skills coming into this. And then just to be in, invited along, uh, so cool to, to be a part of that and to kind of promote this idea. And is that how you and Rouge met? Or had you met? No. Did you know each other before that? Yeah, no, uh, we met in 2017. Rue was working for Alaska dispatch news the biggest newspaper in alaska and she pitched a project to her editor to make a video about a girls um, bike program that i was starting so that's how we met and then you know we were i never expected things to turn out this way but how cool is that that there are more stories to tell you know more places to go and um it's cool just to kind of see where that leads so you two were a but, package deal on this you, uh, she, she was making, she was making the, the, the film and you were, you were doing the writing. Yeah, but kind of, because I mean, really we were invited on the project, but there wasn't a budget for a video. Oh, I see. So uh, they just asked us if we wanted to come and if we thought the story was worth sharing. And then I found uh, funding through my sponsors. So I asked them because I was like, Hey, this is a really cool story. Do you want to, fund a video about this so i asked wahoo which makes uh bike gps and trainers and pearl Azumi, my clothing sponsor and wheels manufacturing which is a small made in u.s components company and komoot that does mapping um, if they wanted to put up some money to make a video happen conservation international had money to fund our plane tickets and expenses um, so, I mean, it was really us that asked, but I think that's the, kind of the thing now is like the direction of uh, marketing is storytelling, which is so cool because it's like you tell real stories that actually mean something. And like, yeah, you wear this, you know, this specific outfit or you use a specific computer, this specific bike, but like we're actually doing something that we really care about. Uh, 
and then uh, brands there, they like people from the brands, they feel inspired by that. This is actually happening. And then it's like, yeah, let's make it, let's make it work. You know? And that's actually how I got into sponsorship in the first place. It was all about media. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like, you can do the coolest things in the world. You can like be the fastest person to cover every continent. But if you don't have any photos or any video about it, it's almost like it never happened. And I've done that too like with zero media and like, yeah, I had a cool experience, but I couldn't share it. You know, there's nothing behind it uh, beyond like me telling people face to face, like, Hey, this is what I did. It was really cool. I can describe what it all looked like, you know, but it's different if, if there's a photo of it, it's like that just carries so much more weight. Uh, so working with Rue, uh, I mean, she's a professional photojournalist. She went to the best, school in the country for that she has amazing skills and like then you know to be able to share that to be able to share my experiences through that is like what a huge gift uh and then you know sponsors love it because it's real you know it's Mm -hmm. like well yeah so i think i think the change is really good you know you don't have to advertise in magazines anymore you can tell real stories yourself there are platforms to do it it's great i mean podcast you know Mm -hmm. it's like how, how did that happen? You know, and now it's like anybody can start their own um, and share share important stories uh, without having to, you know, have a bunch of funding behind it. Right now, Ruta Chingaza, you said that you scouted the route. Does that is that code for you helped create the route? I mean, were you? I I thought I read or saw that that you were instrumental in creating that two hundred and sixty one mile route. Yeah. Uh, you know, not from afar. It's, I got on invited into this project in December and then we traveled there in January. So Logan Watts, the main editor from bikepacking.com had a preliminary route design from afar. Mm-hmm. He lives in North Carolina. And then we traveled down to Bogota, met there and started riding it together. So then it's like making sure that the route's good if you have to change things for private land or because, you know, it's not as beautiful as you wanted it to be doing that together, kind of verifying routes. But really uh, the biggest help we had were from local Colombians uh, to help us make a good route in and out of Bogota. It's hard to route in and out of a city of 10 million. You know, that's, uh, that's most complicated. That's where the most traffic is. uh, The most roads are, you know, it's extended complication like Alaska, there are only so many roads you, you can make route in five minutes. There aren't other options, but when there are more options, like you need better help to make the best possible route. So mm-hmm. that's what we did together. Um, so I think really a big piece for me was making local connections, uh, meeting these people, finding out, you know, what are their strengths? What, what are they? And then it's so fun with biking because they're so passionate about what they do. You know, it's like, the main guy that helped us is Juan Pablo. He has, I think, eight bike and outdoor shops in Bogota, but his real love is just getting out and riding. And then his father was a professional cyclist in, you know, the fifties. I mean, like his cycling is in his blood. Uh, And so then he helped us because like he rides all this stuff, you know, every day he grew up there. So like he can give us the best routes and take us out there and show us places. Um, So that was kind of, my bigger role was like kind of more being the link to the place. And then also for him, it's like he wanted me to meet the locals and talk with them and inspire them to get out and ride because Columbia is a place where there's a history of fear and violence. 
people are not uh, used to the idea of camping. They're not used to being uh, like away from their place at night. Like they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're afraid. They're like drug issues and uh, communist guerrilla issues and instability, but things are changing. So it's like he wants, you know, that's what I could bring in is like encouraging locals to try this stuff because things are actually very safe now, but they're like, are they really safe? And then it's like, well, if I go do it and they see it's okay, then maybe they'll go do it. So that was more of my role was like uh, showing that this is possible. Um, but it takes both sides, right? Everybody has their different skills. Right. So your, your average avid bike packer in Columbia, how long would it take that person to do the, the 261 mile route with, uh, I think it's 31,000 feet uh, or more of elevation gain? What would be the average duration for your, your average person there? We recommend a week. A and that week? was the, the total, uh, that was the design. It's like a week, you okay. know, because people could take a week vacation and do it. Right. And you went out and you set the FKT and you did it in much less than a week, didn't you? 39 hours. 39 hours, less than two days. Yeah. It was really hard. Super (laughs) steep there. I bet. (laughs) I bet. Yes. And does that FKT still stand? It does. But I, you know, the problem right now is that the national park that the route goes through is closed uh, with COVID, it's no, closed. Before right. it was closed because we have to get permission from the. But this is a cool part of the project too, is that we're working with this national park to allow cyclists to travel through. Um, and it's something that they want to do, but they want to have like a good system to set it up. You know, I mean, that's always that's always the tricky part. Where are bikes allowed? Where are they not allowed? Mm-hmm. You know, even in the U.S. It's, it's not always a given. Horses are allowed more places than bikes are. Really? Yeah. Wow. Like the whole Pacific Crest Trail allowed on horseback, not allowed on bike. Yep, that's true. Absolutely. So let's segue back to, uh, to America. Let's talk about this uh, 2016 Trans Am race. So it started in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Tell me, what does what does the starting line look like? How many entrants do you ha- are there in this race? How many competitors? And is, is it like a green green flag? And they wave the flag, and everybody's off, or they fire a gun uh, a gun to get it going, or what, what's that all like? I think it was like uh, I don't know. It's probably like 160 people starting. Um, and... 160 people crazy enough to do this? Yeah. Yeah. And then thousands and thousands more that tour it every year mm-hmm. because it's an established touring route. So, uh, and then I think we had like a four mile neutral start to get through town. Um, and then, and then you're just off to the races. Okay. And, and do they have a, a, a time limit? Do you have to finish this race in a certain number of days or is it just open until, no. until you cross There's the line? A really great guy. Gosh, I wish I could remember his name right now, but he's the first time we raced the Trans Am, I, he finished in like a hundred days. I think he's like maybe 70. And then the next year he was like, well, I'm going to race it again, but I have a goal to finish in 90 days this time. But then I think maybe he didn't finish in 90 days because he stopped to do some field work along the way or something. 
like that. You know, but he's like a really great character. He had like bought this Trans America bike route book and then he was carrying it on the race and he was having like everybody he met along the way sign it and like write a note, kind of like a yearbook. I'm, I gosh, I wish I could think of his name, but what a great character. You know, it's like, yeah, you could tour it or you could race it or you could be like him and tour it in the race and like make an event out of it and carry a spot tracker. And like every town he went to, he had super fans. They were like so excited he was out there, you know, and then that's so cool because it's like he's doing it and like people are that don't have the ability to ride that. It's like he's their hero, you know, uh, so no cutoff. No cutoff. Uh, you know, so, some of this stuff, it's like there's a cutoff of like fastest time plus 50%. But uh, most, of, most of the time it's like, you know, how many people are there? 160? Who cares how long they're out there? It's fine whatever they can do whatever they want <laughs> that's like somebody waving the starting flag down in campo mexico for the uh, opening of the pacific crest trail season and everybody gets there at their own pace then right is it, is it really you're just kind of racing yourself in in that particular race well i wanted to win you wanted to you be know. the first one yeah, yeah. to, to go to from win. oregon to get to yeah yeah of course was it i mean like, it ended it, in virginia is that what you said yeah it ends in yorktown virginia virginia yeah uh, yeah, no, I mean like, yeah, of course you're always racing yourself, but somebody has got to be first. Well, in my mind, uh, you know, as leading up to this podcast, I'm thinking 4,200 miles Trans Am race going across the country. In my mind, I visualized Lael, uh, just battling it out with other competitors neck and neck for 4,200 mm, miles. That's how I finished though. Really? Did it was that tight of a finish? finish? Yeah. I mean, so I caught, I was chasing this guy the entire way. Stefan from Germany and I caught him in the last night at like three in the morning and uh yeah and then we're like neck and neck racing for you know 25 miles and then it's amazing like it's amazing what you can actually you're like dead tired sleep deprived the la the final three nights I slept a total of six hours but then like you get this jolt like of adrenaline and then you can just go you know so uh we raced I mean, and then, okay, so the story is, like, he wanted, he asked me if we could just finish together, and because we'd been racing for so long, and I was like, are you kidding me? Like, if you were, like, 20 miles ahead of me, you wouldn't wait for me to show up. I was like, no way, and, uh, and I love racing, you know, it's like, I, I, I guess there's, that's the, that's the thing, it's like, people love racing or hate racing, but I think it's not a negative, it's just so exciting to be out there, it's like, I want to do my best, I want to win, like, and if I don't, it's fine, but it's like exciting just to be there and do it and give it all, give it everything you have. Okay. You now, now Lail, you have to give our, our listeners the dramatic description of this, of this finish. How far behind were you? How long you, had you been chasing him? Um, when did you catch him and how, how did it go to the very end? I want, I want blow by blow detail on this. Oh man. It's just too much though. It's too much because it's like, okay, so <laughs> I mean, like, up until, like, the halfway point of the, or, you know, I, it's a 4,000-mile race. The, the dynamics are incredible. Like, the first 1,000 miles, I'll tell you, is, like, Stefan Stransky and another woman, Sarah Hammond from Australia, they were, like, neck and neck, like, killing each other. Maybe the first 1,500 miles. Like, they were only sleeping, like, an hour or less, and then... 
you know, they were just like going after each other every day. Stefan would like get Sarah and then Sarah would come back and get him. And then Sarah at one point, like they were so sleep deprived that she missed a turn. Uh, Cause it's none of this stuff is signed. It's like, you just follow your GPS and she missed a turn and went 40 miles in the wrong direction. Uh, and then didn't realize and then had to ride 40 miles back to get back on course. Meanwhile, I was, she rode out 40 miles, back 40 miles. I was still behind her. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> this person is like, goes the wrong way, comes back. And then she's still beating me. I was like, oh man. And at this point, like I've never, I had never ridden with anybody really like in the past. And the, but then I had the same pace as this other guy, Evan. So then we're like, riding together more or less for a week and then you know evan was like cracking i didn't have a smartphone so i couldn't see where anybody was i had no idea but evan did so he'd check like the tracker and he's like he would make jokes like well sarah's in virginia you know like (laughs) she's like gonna kill us and then he told me she went off route and then she came back and then we're like we're still behind you know just like plodding along but sleeping like five hours a night because you kind of have to Uh i i I don't know, to like maintain sanity. Um, But then Evan was like, Sarah, we're catching her. Like we caught her in Colorado. And then we catch her. We ride with her for an hour or so. She's super, super out of it. Uh, I think she's an amazing rider, but she definitely dug herself in a hole there. And then at that point, we're like getting into Kansas and we're, Evan and I are second and third, and then the leader, Stefan, is uh, in first, and he stopped sleeping at all because he was like, I think because he was so worried that I was going to catch him. You know, he's like, he can't be beaten by a woman. She's coming. And then fans would tell me that he would like, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I'd be at a gas station buying chocolate milk, and somebody would be like, Stefan was asked, where is she? You know, like... (laughs) He was like hounded and I was like, Oh, that's terrible. But you I was took, like, I'm just going to get him. <laughs> you took up, you took up residence in his head. You were I living there rent, rent free. Well, yeah. It's hard to be out front. It's really hard, you know? So I'm like, cause it, if you're behind somebody, you're like, Oh, well, they're just there. I'll do my own thing. But if you're in the front, you're like, what are they doing behind me? Are they going to get me? You know, it's hard to be the leader. It really is. Um, Anyway, yeah, after Kansas, he stopped sleeping past, like, cat naps, you know, like, 20 minutes at a time or whatever. But that's only, like, halfway into the race. You have, like, another 2,000 miles to go. You know, that's, like, a long time to cat nap. Um, Then I was just, like, kind of gaining on him, and then he'd be ahead because he rode so much longer. Uh, But then, you know, I get to kind of towards the end, and I'm riding with Evan, and we both want to catch this guy. But then Evan... It's like falling asleep on descent in Kentucky. And then the, like the real story about this race is that the Eastern portion is just so much harder than the West. Like you think the West is going to be hard because there's all the, there are all these mountain passes and climbs, but the East is just like choppy up and down, kind of like the Appalachian trail. Like it's just like punchy and hard, relentless. Uh, but then that's actually when I kind of came into you know, like what I can actually do. Like I'm a great climber. That's what I can do. You know, this road riding flat terrain, it was horrible for me, but I could climb. 
So then I'm catching this guy and then I realize like, okay, well, I have to start cutting sleep to actually try to make it go to catch him. So then like three nights out, I sleep, you know, two and a half hours, two nights out, I sleep another two and a half hours. The final night I sleep like 20 minutes and then another 10 minutes and I'm like, I'm going to catch him. And then I'm riding along, you know, the middle of the night, Evan had fallen asleep. So he had on a descent, he had had to stop and go to a hotel, which sucked because I wish we were together for that. But then um, I'm gaining, you know, ground. And then I see this light coming back towards me. Uh, and I was like, Whoa, who is that three in the morning? And it was, uh, and then I see this guy with like a bike and all the gear and, um, and I was like, why is that like a fan or what? But when he sees me, he turns around and starts riding with me and I turn and look at him and I was like, what's your name? And he told me, Stefan. And then <laughs> I realized that's the guy I'd been chasing and he had been so out of it that he had woken up and started riding backwards. He rode like, you know, you know, over 4,000 mile race. He started, woke up, started riding backwards. I think rode like 10 miles back. Ooh. and then saw me and then started riding the right way and then and then he told me his name and then i was just like Phew! i just took off and then i'm just sprinting like crazy and then we're like going down the roads and uh you know it's the middle of nowhere it's totally dark and then uh there's a split in the road we've been riding for like like uh 10 miles already just sprinting not talking and then i take a right and he's like no it's to the left like that because it's like none of this stuff signed like you everybody makes tons of wrong turns uh and so then he kind of like waits up as i catch him and he's like let's talk and i was like well he kind of waited for me so okay we'll talk and then he's like we've been battling this out for two weeks let's just finish this together and i was like together no way this is like the best part i can't believe we're actually racing to the finish so then i just take off and then he's like with me and then every time he catches me, I just go harder and harder and harder. And then, you know, like after like over 20 miles, 25 miles, I like, I like look back and I realize that I dropped him, you know, and then he was gone. And then I get to the next town, like it's all, you're always looking for towns to fill up water, get food, whatever. And then uh, I get to the next town, but on my way in, like my, I have electronic shifting on my bike and it died. So then I'm like, okay, well, I could just single speed like that. The, the bike still works, but it won't shift gears. So then I'm like, oh, well, no. I could just single speed to the end because I don't want him to catch up with me because this guy's behind me. And then if, and then I was like, well, I, I have to deal with this. It's not fast enough. I need gears. So then I'm like, well, I have to hide somewhere because if he sees me, then he's going to be realize that I have a problem. And then he's going to get like energy and he's going to go. So then I'm like, hide behind a gas station and then I'm like trying to like figure out my electronic shifting I can't get the battery out I find I have like a spare battery I connected I shove them both down my my down tube and I like keep going and then I have a hundred miles left and I was like all right and then I, I realized like what a burden it is to be the leader because I was like he's behind <laughs> me and then you're just like freaked out about who's behind you and I was like and then I'm paranoid I'm like no glass in the road, no flat tires, no problems. Like you have to be consistent. Uh, so that's what I did, you know? And then I ride to the finish, like 17 miles an hour average, get there, finish. And, uh, and 
yeah, then there's like a group of like 20 people to cheer me in. It's Yorktown, Virginia. So they have like Civil War reenactments, like little kids playing flutes and it's super weird, you know, and I'm like already <laughs> delirious. And then uh, uh, he came, I waited for him at the finish and he came in like two hours later. Um, so you won the 4,200 mile race just by two hours, overtaking him in the last, uh, what, 125 miles? Yeah. That's incredible. I would, Lael, I would pay to see that movie. (laughs) It doesn't exist. When when are they making the movie? I know, right? But then if nobody's out there documenting, it doesn't exist. That's the sad part. Oh, it exists. It exists right here in my mind now. That was a a wonderful rendition. I know. It's too bad. The the race director on that one was out there in a Saturn taking photos. (laughs) <laughs> and he looked worse at the finish than the rest of us. <laughs> I mean, that's a long time to be out there. You know, the fastest person is 18 days. And then you're supposed to, you know, at least he didn't wait for the 90 day guy, but he probably waited for another 10, 12. That's this this the thing about these races. They get so spread out that it's like people are in different states at, at a certain point. So, in covering that those 4,200 miles, there had to be many epic moments on the trail. Can you, can you boil it down to a, a top three, just a quick list of top three epic moments on the Trans Am race? Yeah, early along, because it was a heat wave, I, I realized the best thing for me was to totally submerge my body in water as much as possible. So I would like jump off my bike with my shoes on and like jump into creeks get under like spigots anywhere I could find water. I would just like soak myself because that's the only way I could cool down. Uh, that was a big deal. My whole, it was so hot and sunny that my skin peeled off my arms twice from sunburn Ouch. and it had blisters and I had a huge crack in my lip and uh, a lady at a convenience store gave me chapstick <laughs> for free. <laughs> uh what else is that one of the top three epic moments yeah i mean that was the real experience um yeah breaking the seat post was good you know once i got a flat tire and yeah i i don't know the people that uh like these nice folks in colorado were like or oh well she looks like she crashed but she said she just got a flat and it was just what I looked like you know I looked so bad (laughs) I mean I don't know you know it's like you ride through Kentucky I don't I don't think I would have ever gone there otherwise it's it's amazing it's amazing to see the country like that you know I don't know if any any moment is that special beyond just like being out there and seeing what you see all right, I'm gonna pin you down. Favorite state you saw that you rode through on mm. the Trans Am? Favorite riding was Missouri. Missouri, wow, why? Yeah, uh, like a roller coaster, just up and down, so so hard through the Ozarks. It was like, like incredibly hard riding, but also so fun at night. Because the thing is, you always have to ride through the nights. I would but you can't see cause it's dark. You know, I had pretty good lighting, but I would just look at my GPS to see the turns in the road and then be like, okay, it's going to do this because I, you're so freaked out. And then you can't see far ahead. And then I'm like, I hope there's nothing in the way. 
like a big like stick or something that'll take me out i mean it was just that's wild just to like descend in the dark it's like your stomach is just gonna go like up into your chest crazy but i did like the riding there it was just more fun than kind of flat kansas was pretty tough well, that was an epic story about the Trans Am. Thanks for sharing that with us. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear about the Baja Divide, the bicycle shop, and what's next for Lale. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Hey, y'all. It's Brittany Woodrum, and I just completed climbing all 58 of Colorado's 14ers, and you're listening to the John Frickin' Muir Pod. Thanks so much for listening. And welcome back. So that was quite the story about the, the Trans Am race, 4,200 miles, came in first, uh, first place, men or women. You're the first place finisher overall, dramatic finish. Um, how about the Baja Divide? What is, what is that race all about? I understand that you were the co-designer of that and – currently hold the fkt on it i don't actually oh you don't anymore. a guy uh i think a year or two later pete basinger went back and beat my time by an hour and a half oh. so my time was 11 and a half days and he beat it by an hour and a half <laughs> so where is the baja divide how Which long is, is the race uh the route is 1,700 miles, okay. and it goes from San Diego to uh, San Jose del Cabo down the Baja Peninsula in Mexico. Wow. Um, yeah, and then there's a little loop in the Cape, um, but Baja is a desert. So it's a strip of land with water on both sides, the Pacific Ocean and the Sea of Cortez, and then a desert in between. But up high, there are uh, oases you know, like natural water sources, which are pretty incredible to see in a desert. Um, but yeah, hey, so a, a bit of a backstory on the route I had ridden uh, down Baja. And there's only one road down Baja. It's the one. Um, and I biked toward it in 2010. And it's really beautiful, but it's really narrow and it's really sketchy. Um, to ride with traffic all around. And then, you know, even during this ride, at the time I was with my boyfriend then, and we were like, wow, there are all these dirt roads going all these different directions. How cool would it be uh, to be kind of riding this dirt instead of riding the pavement? And, but we just had road bikes and our road touring bikes, and we tried to ride a bit of dirt, but it's really sandy down there. So it's just not a lot of fun if you don't have the right equipment. Um, but then we came back, uh, five years later, and this was after I'd gotten into racing and the whole idea with the trip down to Baja was, it was supposed to be resting. I'd already ridden, you know, I, I had ridden like 9,000 miles in three months before this trip. And I just wanted to rest. Like, I just wanted to get a job in a restaurant. I was broke. I was tired. I just didn't have energy or like, even I didn't I just didn't want to be on my bike but my boyfriend then he had been working all summer and he was like well I want to ride so we can just go down there it'll be short days on the bike you'll rest a lot and it'll be just relaxing whatever but then within 
so we tried to piece together a route for ourselves that was like just more dirt we had mountain bikes three inch tires huge tires uh and then within a week of just riding we were like this is so fantastic that we we have to make her out here to share with other people um so that was the next that was like the focus for the next three months of that year and then three months of the next year was to buy bike scout and ride you know this full route and we had to make two passes down the peninsula to get the best riding because there are always things that stop and one of them was in the east side there's a road uh through San Felipe and then it extends south of there and it's just getting more and more paved. So then it's like, well, it's not as interesting of a ride if it's all pavement. So then we went back through and took it back to the West coast along the Pacific. And there's a dirt road along the Pacific ocean, you know, that you can ride on a bike, like a good Jeep road. And it's like for, you know, like people from California and the U S it's like, it made me think like, this is like California from a hundred years ago. You know, like what a gift to be able to ride this, to see like the rugged ocean from your bike without anything being developed. Uh, so we worked, you know, basically six months and two years to put this together and then uh, had a group start on the route where I think it was January 2nd, 2017. We had an open invite for people to meet us in San Diego to all begin to ride together. And there were a hundred people there and we all started riding the route together, not as a race, just as a ride. And then people kind of leapfrogged along the way and then, you know, went down and did this ride. And then I went back, I think two months later to establish the FKT. Uh, yeah. How, how cool is that to put that together over the course of uh, six months or more and then invite others to come out and ride it with you and have a hundred others show up and just enjoy you know, what you have put together. That's incredible. It was super cool. It was like people from internationally, people from Alaska, people from all over the world. And uh, I had also hosted a women's scholarship to provide the bike and bags and camping equipment and everything you needed to ride this route um, at your own time for, uh, and then so many women that applied for the scholarship, but didn't get it still showed up for the group start and still rode the route. So then it was like, it was a, a lot of women out there as well, which was really cool. And, um, you know, we just had so much fun, you know, but I mean, to be honest, the, the process of organizing that was super taxing. I mean, this was pre sponsorship at all. Like I was paying to be there. I was paying to put all this stuff together and it was a ton of work, but worth it. Just because you don't get paid doesn't mean it's not worth it, but it is definitely exhausting, yeah. you know, to like do that. So uh, I'm glad I did it, but it was really, really mentally hard to yeah. do that. And then also to be worried, you know, because it's like people have this stigma about Mexico. Oh, it's not safe. You know, people can't go there. And then, I mean, Baja is kind of like Alaska. It's super remote. Yeah, maybe it's not safe because there's not a lot of water, but not because people are going to attack you you know it's just that's the that's the kind of thing we were dealing with it's like a lot of stress to encourage people to do something because you just you don't know how their experience is going to go uh and so it was really tough but really cool to do at the same time and the route's still out there so you know every year people are riding it uh which is great i haven't been back since 2018 i think i rode it four times 
you know, in a year and a half. So I kind of got me fill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. It sounds Sounds gorgeous. Hey, let's, uh, let's go back up to Alaska where you are right now. And tell me a little bit about uh, this place where you spend some of your extra time, your spare time working at the bicycle shop. Yeah, I don't work there anymore. Oh, you don't? Okay. I, no. I, I had read that you, you still, uh, during the off season, kind of spent some time working at the bicycle shop, a, a little local place where you are. So, Yeah, that's, it's that's a great dumb. shop. It's the oldest shop in Alaska. Uh, the owner is, I think, like 75 and still works seven days a week in the summer. And it's a really cool spot. Uh, and then he would always employ me, you know, if I needed work or whatever he would just whenever i mean so in 2017 i started a project to ride all the roads in alaska uh so we put a huge map of alaska on one of the walls and then you know i would just kind of stare at what roads i could ride and um and he said this is just so great you're doing this whenever you want to ride uh go out and ride whenever you want to come back and work come back and work and that was like i mean really that was my first real good sponsorship was like somebody would actually pay me to be there when I was there and let me go when I needed to go. And that was super cool. Uh, they're a specialized dealer. Um, so we've worked on events together, the mentorship program grit that I work on, they send specialized sends all the bikes to the shop and they help us build them up. We have our first meeting there, the girls get their bikes. Um, so it's, it's a good place, you know, bike shops are, uh, so necessary for communities, for service and for help. And um, I mean, this year there's been the biggest bike boom that's ever happened. They're in shortage. Everybody wants to ride. That's what's available. You know, it's like you go back to the basics of what can I do solo outside and biking is like definitely one of the top things that, that is possible. So um, I'm happy to say that they're doing really, really well. Good, good. Hey, you mentioned grit. You, we've, we've, I think we've mentioned that a couple of times, maybe. But uh, tell us about grit. What it's all about. Where you got your inspiration for that? Yeah. So grit uh, stands for Girls Riding Into Tomorrow, and it's a six-week mentorship program I hold for twelve and thirteen-year-old low-income girls in Anchorage, my hometown. Uh, we meet two to three times a week to build up to a sixty-mile three-day adventure ride at the end from their school in Anchorage out to a forest service cabin. Uh, it's so cool. I started this with a friend in 2017 and she was down riding the Baja Divide, uh, Kate Rodriguez, and we were just riding together talking about, you know, what we wish existed in the world. We worked together on a um, program to get bikes for my mom's third grade class the year before. And I was like, do you want to do something like that again? And she was like, well, I'd like to do something like that, but with focusing on girls and focusing on middle school or high school. So then we kind of pieced it together and um, have been doing that ever since. And Specialized provides entry-level mountain bikes for it and Revelate Designs provides bags, but really we just have local volunteers to bring the girls out for rides and then also host classes on like fixing a flat and first aid and other things you need to do to prepare for the final trip. But these are girls that before they start, they uh, have never ridden, you know, more than five miles. They're not athletes. And that's like the main thing. So I work with 
schools in the Anchorage School District and uh, teachers nominate the girls that aren't necessarily athletes but are hardworking would benefit from something like this, you know, are good with others. And um, so that's what we do. We usually work with 15 girls a year and then they get to keep their bikes at the end of the year and come back as student mentors the next year. Uh, so it's been cool to see, you know, our first girls are now juniors in high school and they started as 12 year olds. Uh, so it's been cool to see them kind of grow up and, and, you know, continue to bike. And he, I mean, that's the cool thing about biking is it's, it's a vehicle. It's a way to be outside. It's a way to compete. It's a way to, you know, be active, but it can be, um, different things for everybody. You know, it's basically anything you could do on foot, you could basically do on a bike. Yeah. I imagine they've learned a lot about themselves through that experience. And, uh, for some, for most, I imagine it's really been a life-changing experience for them. Yeah, me too. You know, to see young girls like take on these big challenges. I mean, the real motivation to start it was nothing like that existed for me when I was young. You know, it's like, I'm really happy that I played sports, but I never thought that I could bike. So then it's like, well, what if I found it earlier? Or what if they find it earlier? And, you know, they don't have to continue, but to take on a big challenge and accomplish it, that's something that works towards anything you want to continue with in life, mm-hmm. you know? So I think that's been fun to see and different, different than the norm, you know? And they're 12. They can't drive a car yet. <laughs> do, you, do you drive yet? Uh, I have my license. but Oh, you did. Con- congratulations. You got it. Thank you. <laughs> All right. What, what's, what's next for Lael? Uh, going to Arizona on Sunday. Yeah. And then I'll be down there, based out of there for the winter. I'm doing a time trial on the Cocopelli Trail November 10th. So that's uh, Moab to Fruta, Colorado, 140 miles uh, with a, with a friend. So uh, excited for that. And, you know, just excited to get down to the desert, warmer weather. A shout out to Fruta, Fruta, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to Fruta, Colorado, because that is the town where uh, we were on a cross country trip to take my son to a baseball tournament and we ran out of gas literally coming off of the freeway and cruising into the gas station there in Fruta, Colorado. So that was my experience with Fruta. Cool. <laughs> All right. Hey, Lael, you know where we are right now? Where? We, oh, to the pro tip? Yes, that's right. <laughs> We're at the pro tip insight of the week. What, what bit of wisdom do you have to share with our listeners to make their next adventures uh, even more epic or enjoyable? Mm. Uh, bring something good to eat. You know, bring real food, something that you're looking forward to having. I feel like people, people sacrifice food and then they bring other stuff that they don't really want or need. So that's a good one. Bring an apple, you know, you'll be happy to have it, eat it. And then that weight's gone. That's right. That's right. Cause you know, through hikers, uh, two days onto the trail, for the rest of the hike, all they do is talk about food and what they're going to eat when they get back. So I think that's an True. excellent, excellent pro tip. What are some of your top food items that you take with you? Oh, man, if I'm just uh, touring on the bike, not racing, I'll bring tomatoes, cucumber. Um, you know, in, in Baja, I was like 
They had bags of refried beans that was so good. Uh, tortillas are great. You know, what else? I mean, gosh, every country has their own special thing. You know, bike racing in France, it's all bakeries and pastries. Uh, Lithuania, they have these great little cheesecake bars. I mean, that's a, that's the fun thing about this, about, you know, bikepacking is like you are doing your own resupply so you can just find the good stuff along the way. The U.S., it's a little more limited because it's mostly gas stations. Uh, in Colombia, is little arepas, these cornmeal discs with sweet cheese in them. Whatever's there, I try to find the best of what I can get and something that I actually want to eat because that's the other thing is like, you just have to eat a ton. That's yeah, kind you, of sad. You should always enjoy eating, but sometimes it's kind of gross. Yeah, you just you're burning the calories. You gotta you gotta pack those calories in. All right, so there you have it. That's it. Episode forty two is in the books. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Lael, and I want to thank her for joining us this week. Lael, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media, and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Yeah, easiest is Instagram. So uh, it's my name, Lael Wilcox. Very good. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Instagram and Twitter. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakinmuir at gmail.com. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, take just a minute, help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself, right, Lael? <laughs> or you can say. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a wrap from the John Freakin' Muir studio. Any final thoughts? I think that's it. That's it. Okay. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if you're in the, if you're at the end of a 4,200 mile cross country race, 125 miles from the finish and you're chasing down a guy named Stefan. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. <laughs> life that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv don't miss mondays with into the blue brought to you by academy sports and outdoors every monday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment